The Subcommittee on the Constitution will come to order, and uh, let me first apologize to my colleagues and to the witnesses for my delay um, caused by a number of circumstances, including most recently a stopped subway tram. So if anything go, can go wrong, it will go wrong. Uh, but I do want to thank all of you for being here today. Yesterday, President Biden issued, in effect, a call to action an urgent plea to protect democracy amidst an onslaught of state laws restricting voting rights. He declared that, quote, we are facing the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War, end quote. We must, President Biden said, have, quote, the will to save and strengthen our democracy. During the Civil Rights Movement, the president, then President Johnson, made a similar call to action. In the summer of 1965, state troopers mercilessly attacked John Lewis and 600 others as they crossed the bridge in Selma, Alabama, in peaceful protest of discriminatory voting laws. In the wake of the attack, and as the nation came together to grieve, President Johnson called for an end to voting discrimination in America. Two days later, Congress announced it would take up that call in legislation. And just five months after Bloody Sunday, as it came to be known, the Voting Rights Act was passed by Congress with broad bipartisan support. The purpose of today's hearing is to heed President Biden's call, a call to action to protect our democracy, just as Congress heeded President Johnson's call in 1965. We're going to explore the real-world impact of two deeply flawed anti-democratic Supreme Court decisions undermining the Voting Rights Act, Shelby County in 2013, and Brinovich just two weeks ago. This morning, I met with a number of deeply courageous members of the Texas House of Representatives. They shared their harrowing stories of the impact of the Supreme Court's recent decision in Texas, which has some of the most extreme voting restrictions in the country. Efforts to purge the voting rolls including efforts to purge tens of thousands of newly naturalized citizens eager to exercise their constitutional right to vote as Americans, efforts to criminalize the right to vote, putting people in prison for improperly filing a provisional ballot, efforts to limit voting hours and mail-in balloting, which are critical to opportunities to vote for communities like medical professionals, individuals serving in the military, and veterans. Sadly, there are similar stories from states across the country. And those stories include the threats of criminal prosecution that intimidate the exercise of fundamental rights. And what so deeply impressed me about the stories I heard this morning from those members of the Texas legislature, and a number of them are here in the audience today, is the effect on their exercise of rights, their exercise of rights as American citizens. We cannot let these attacks on democracy stand. Before Shelby County and Brinovich, the Voting Rights Act was immensely successful. The Department of Justice and American voters were able to use the Voting Rights Act to halt well over 1,000 discriminatory election rules. The Voting Rights Act became known as the crown jewel of the civil rights movement. And in subsequent decades, the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized five times, five times with bipartisan support. But... Beginning in the 1980s, the courts began to chip away at its protections. On July 1, the Supreme Court struck its latest blow, gutting the power of Section 2 
of that Voting Rights Act in Brinovich versus Democratic National Committee. The 6-3 partisan decision was a stunning display of judicial overreach and activism. The text of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act plainly requires the members of every racial group have equal voting opportunity. And yet the court decision of Brinovich is completely untethered from the text that Congress enacted. As Justice Kagan said in her powerful dissent, the majority did not like the statute Congress wrote, so it, quote, wrote its own set of rules limiting Section 2 from multiple directions, end quote. Brinovich follows the court's equally devastating partisan 5-4 decision in Shelby County in 2013. Following Shelby County, states have been free to pass voting restrictions without pre-clearance process to assess whether the changes are racial, racially discriminatory. And they have, in 2021 alone, 17 states already passed 28 laws to restrict voting rights, approximately 21 thousand polling places nationwide that serve voters on election day have been eliminated since Shelby County and millions of voters have been purged from the voter rolls. The Supreme Court is at a low point of legitimacy when its decisions undermine the institution of our democracy. And in Shelby County and Brianovich, the Supreme Court has methodically undermined all the tools Congress crafted in the Voting Rights Act to fight against discrimination in voting. The right to vote is not, and it should never be, a partisan endeavor, not in this great country, the United States of America. But if the Senate is unable to meet this moment and reauthorize the Voting Rights Act because of Republican opposition to voter protections that have been passed with overwhelming bipartisan support for over 50 years, we are forced to consider all of our options, including eliminating the filibuster. Indeed, I've long been in favor of eliminating the filibuster. It was one of my first votes as a member of the United States Senate. I was one of only 12 that voted to eliminate the filibuster, but I have seen over the past 10 years, one by one, many, many of my colleagues reach the same conclusion that reform is necessary. Because the truth is that voting rights are truly bipartisan. They are widely supported throughout American society, on the left, the right, the center, in the private and public sectors, polling shows the vast majority of voters support equal access to the ballot box. And just today, more than 160 companies have released a public letter of support for the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Protecting the right to vote is a matter of living up to America's founding ideals that our government, quote, derives its just powers from the consent of the governed, end quote. As a tsunami of voter suppression bills crashes on this nation, my deepest hope is that today we can renew a bipartisan commitment to protecting voting rights in this country. I turn to the ranking member. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. It has long been said that hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. And in few areas is this more clearly true than when it comes to voting rights. Today we see Democrats giving long emotional speeches about protecting the right to vote, but today's congressional Democrats do not believe in the right to vote. They do not believe in democracy, and they are championing 
efforts to take away the right to vote from American citizens. The rhetoric that is being used by Joe Biden, by Chuck Schumer, by other Democrats is consistently inflammatory. Indeed, one of the phrases that they like to use today is Jim Crow 2.0. Ironically and inadvertently, there's some truth to what they're saying because we do have legislation pending before Congress that would indeed be Jim Crow 2.0. It's worth asking what was Jim Crow 1.0. Jim Crow 1.0 were a series of racist laws that were written by Democrats, that were enforced by Democrats, whose purpose was to prevent the voters from ever voting Democrats out of power. Jim Crow was offensive, it was racist, it was bigoted, it was wrong, and it was the Democratic Party who wrote, enforced, and implemented it. So what's Jim Crow 2.0? It's the latest efforts of Democrats to write laws to prevent the voters from voting Democrats out of power. Before the Senate is pending S-1, what the authors have Orwellingly entitled the For the People Act, but many are rightly calling it the Corrupt Politicians Act. The only objective of the Corrupt Politicians Act is to keep Democrats in power for the next hundred years, to take away the right of American voters to vote Democrats out of power. How does it do that? Corrupt Politicians Act would strike down every voter ID law in the country. 80% of Americans support voter ID. 60% of African Americans support voter ID. What would the Corrupt Politicians Act do? Repeal every one of those laws. And mind you, this is while Democrats are saying, we support the right to vote, so we're going to take away the decision made by the voters to enact voter ID laws. What else does the Corrupt Politicians Act do? 29 states have prohibited ballot harvesting. Ballot harvesting is the corrupt practice where you send operatives to collect the ballots of others. So a paid operative, for example, from the DNC will go into a nursing home, will collect hundreds of ballots from seniors, some of whom may no longer be competent to make a decision. And the reason 29 states have prohibited it is that it invites fraud. And in a scrupulous operative, it's very simple. For that operative with a diminished someone with diminished capacity for them to vote the ballot the way they want it to. And if someone has the temerity to vote for the other side, the corrupt operative can just throw that ballot in the trash and never mail it in. If you actually cared about the integrity of elections, you'd want to stop ballot harvesting. What does the Corrupt Politicians Act do? Strikes down every law that prohibits ballot harvesting and mandates it nationwide. If the Democrats who, who say they protect the right to vote believed it, why do they want to strike down what the voters chose to adopt, which is protecting the integrity of their election? The Corrupt Politicians Act automatically registers to vote every single person who interacts with the government in any, any way. That means if you get an unemployment check, if you get a welfare check, if you have a driver's license, if you go to a public college or university, bingo, you're automatically registered to vote. What is the predicted and, in fact, intended consequence of that? That millions of illegal immigrants would be automatically registered to vote. In fact, the Corrupt Politicians Act explicitly immunizes the state officials who would be registering illegal immigrants to vote. Now, when you register millions of illegal immigrants to vote, you are stealing the right to vote from American citizens. That is not protecting the right to vote. That is stealing the right to vote. The Corrupt Politicians Act mandates that felons all across the country be allowed to vote. Because Democrats have made the decision that if millions of illegal immigrants and millions of felons and murderers and rapists and child molesters are voting, they believe they're likely to vote for Democrats. Just a moment ago, the chairman said that voting rights legislation should not be partisan. Well, the Corrupt Politicians Act is nakedly partisan. And, and, and what really admits the entire joke, 
Federal Election Commission, when it was enacted in the wake of Watergate, it was designed to be bipartisan. Three Republicans, three Democrats. What does the Corrupt Politicians Act do? Makes it partisan. Makes it three Democrats and two Republicans. So that Chuck Schumer would have the Federal Elections Agency as an attack dog to use as a political weapon, not to protect integrity, not to follow the law, but to ensure that Democrats can never be beaten and the voters don't have a right to vote. When congressional Democrats talk about Shelby County and wanting to make every jurisdiction in America subject to DOJ preclearance, understand what that means. That means your state legislature in your home doesn't have the ability to pass laws concerning voting without getting an unelected bureaucrat in the Department of Justice to sign off on it first. Mind you, this is after Joe Biden is nominated and, and Senate Democrats have confirmed extreme partisans to the Department of Justice. Kristen Clark, who is a left-wing radical activist, would be in charge of voting laws all across the country with the ability to stop any elected legislature from passing laws concerning voting. I ask you, if you actually believed the rhetoric from Democrats that you wanted to protect the right to vote, why the hell would you say you can't vote in the state legislatures unless an unelected Democrat who's not accountable to the people says it's okay? This is not about the right to vote. We heard some stringent rhetoric about the Supreme Court's Brnovich decision. I'll tell you, I was proud to lead an amicus brief for 11 senators in the Brnovich case. State of Arizona quite reasonably prohibited ballot harvesting because ballot harvesting invites fraud and is corrupt. And the Supreme Court, by a vote of 6-3, to three, agreed with the position that I advocated on behalf of 11 senators that states have the authority to protect the integrity of their election. We should protect everyone's right to vote. And I will note, by the way, the civil rights decision legislation that has been adopted, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, a significantly greater percentage of Republicans voted for it than did Democrats. 82% of Republicans in the Senate voted for the Civil Rights Act of 1964, 69% of Democrats did. We should protect the right to vote, and that means not striking down common-sense voter integrity laws. That means not subjecting elected state legislatures to oversight by unelected bureaucrats. That means protecting the right to vote for everyone, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity. And one of the ways you protect the right to vote is enacting common-sense protections to stop that right from being stolen. And unfortunately, congressional Democrats are not interested in doing that. Uh, thank you, Senator Cruz. I understand uh, some of the other members of the committee may want to make uh, an opening statement. Uh, Senator Leahy is recognized. Thank you. Thank you, um, Senator. I thought now we've heard the rhetoric. Let's go to the reality. I look at uh, my state, which has some of the most open voting anywhere, both uh, in how you can qualify and, <clears throat> and who can vote. And we do everything possible for open voting, times of voting, mail-in voting. And does this get a partisan result? Well, last year elected a Republican as governor, a Democrat as lieutenant governor. And it goes back back and forth. Um, in my own, it's also the only state that's elected only one Democrat to the U.S. Senate. The only state in the union, that's me. Uh, I have no problems with the, with the uh, way we do it. But we also have one of the highest percentages of voter turnout of any state in the union because people know they can vote, they're encouraged to vote, and they'll be able to vote. Old, young, uh, no matter what their nationality, they can vote. 
And it really frustrates me when I see so many states um, who seem to be doing everything possible to limit the ability of people to vote, except for the particular ones they want. So, Mr. Chairman, I thank you for holding this hearing about what we have to do to restore the Voting Rights Act in response to the Supreme Court's sustained effort to cripple it. The VRA is one of this body's greatest legislative achievements. It's enjoyed overwhelming bipartisan support, Democrats and Republicans alike, for entirely, virtually its entire existence. So it's an affront to the will of Congress that two very partisan decisions have gutted the landmark law, making our democracy accessible to millions who have wrongfully been shut out from it, and these decisions want to shut them out again. In some ways, the Brunovich decision a few weeks ago didn't surprise me. Follow the same playbook as the disastrous Shelby County decision in 2013, where a partisan majority in the court replaced Congress's clear bipartisan will with its own and gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Like Shelby County, the Baranovich decision ignored the well-established intent of Congress, invented seemingly out of thin air new hurdles around Section 2 of the VRA effectively strangling. Let's get clear. Gutting Section 5 and Section 2 of the VRA is not some exercise in judicial nipplings around the margins of the VRA to somehow just improve a few little things. Section 5 and Section 2 are the vital organs of the law. Section 5 empowers the Justice Department to stop discriminatory changes to voting procedures from taking effect, something that was supported by both Republicans and Democrats in the past, no matter which uh, party held the presidency. Section 2 empowers ordinary Americans to seek redress in court against voting changes discriminating against minority voters. So the partisan majority in the Supreme Court knew exactly what it was doing by nullifying Section 5 and Section 2 of the Act. Without them, the VRA is on life support. And we, the people, are left with very few ways to protect our precious right to vote. And, of course, the Barnabas decision could not have come in a, mo- a worse moment. Empowered by the Shelby County decision, fueled by the former president's big lie that the 2020 election was stolen from him, dozens of states have rushed to enact voter suppression laws. With each passing week, literally tens of thousands of Americans are having their right to vote chipped away. So it was already a fire alarm fire for Americans voting rights before the Brunovich decision. With the Brunovich decision, took away one of the last of the remaining tools to battle the blaze. VRA Section 2 effectively declared open season to suppress Americans voting right with impunity. So I don't think we should sit idly by about this. Those who argue that restoring the VRA is a partisan exercise could use a little history lesson. Since its original enactment in 1965, the VRA and its core provisions have been reauthorized repeatedly five times, five times, with overwhelmingly Republican and Democratic votes in Congress. Presidents Nixon, Reagan, George W. Bush all signed VRA reauthorization into law, touting the profound importance of the landmark law for our democracy. I voted to reauthorize it four times throughout my service in the Senate, and I stood there with both Democrats and Republicans on the floor of the Senate doing that. In fact, uh, I went back to see how many Republicans voted the same way I did, how many Democrats. Well, here's what I found. The most recent voting rights uh, 
VRA reauthorization was in 2006. The vote was 98 to 0. Repeat that. 98 to 0. So I think it's pretty clear that every Republican, every Democrat on the Senate floor voted for it. And you have a lot of Republican senators still serving today who voted yes. So I just suggest everybody check the facts before arguing that restoring this is a partisan effort. It's not. What is a partisan effort is, of course, decision Shelby County and Brnovich. So let's get to work. I authored and long championed the bipartisan John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. I pushed an act law on my right might finally restore the Voting Rights Act. I hope our Republican friends will join us from reauthorizing that vote as they did before. So I'll put my whole statement on the record. Mr. Chairman, I appreciate your courtesy. Let me pop in how this was in the intelligence matter that I couldn't leave. Thank you. Thanks, Senator Leahy. I'm going to introduce the witnesses. Uh, Jose Garza, who joins us remotely, has more than 40 years of experience practicing law dealing almost exclusively with federal law. His practice areas focus mainly on governmental entities and federal litigation, including First and Fourteenth Amendment issues, redistricting, federal voting rights, and civil rights. Mr. Garza recently retired as the litigation director for Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid, Inc., and is currently voting rights counsel for the Mexican-American Legislative Caucus in private practice as the law office of Jose Garza. Mr. Garza has represented Latino voters in voting rights litigation, including statewide redistricting cases. Mr. Ken Cusinelli. Ken Cusinelli is a lawyer, conservative politician, and national chairman of the Election Transparency Initiative, a coalition formed in 2021 to restore confidence in elections and eliminate proposed reforms by Democrats. Mr. Cusinelli served in the Trump administration as the acting director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services and then as the acting deputy secretary for the Department of Homeland Security. Janae Nelson is associate director, counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, a renowned scholar of voting rights and election law. Nelson continues to produce cutting edge scholarship on domestic and comparative election law, race, and democratic theory. She received a BA from New York University and a JD from UCLA School of Law. Upon graduating from law school, Ms. Nelson clerked on the Northern District of Illinois and the Eighth Circuit. Russ Nobile is senior attorney with Judicial Watch, a conservative nonpartisan education foundation whose mission is to promote transparency and integrity in government, politics, and law. Prior to joining Judicial Watch, he was a lawyer in private practice who focused on government, litigation, regulatory matters, and commercial litigation. He is an active member of the Federal Society for Law and Public Policy Studies and was appointed to the United States Election Assistance Commission's Board of Advisors. Professor Richard Hassan is Chancellor's Professor of Law and Public Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. He is a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation. He writes as well in the areas of legislation, statutory interpretation, remedies, and torts. He holds a BA degree with the highest honors from UC Berkeley and JD, MA, and PhD in political science from UCLA. After law school, he clerked on the Ninth Circuit and worked as a civil appellate lawyer in private practice. Uh, we will... 
begin by my swearing in the witnesses, as is our custom on the Judiciary Committee, and then proceed to opening statements. If you would please rise. You solemnly swear that the testimony that you will give will be the whole truth, the truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Thank you. Good. Uh, Mr. Garza, if we could begin with you, and I know you are testifying remotely as are uh, Ms. Nelson and uh, Mr. Hassan. Blumenthal, Ranking Member Cruz, uh, thank you so much for allowing me to come before the committee and testify uh, on these important issues. Uh, what I'd like to do this afternoon is focus on um, the impact of these changes of these laws on my clients. Um, uh, I think it's important to start, for instance, with uh, the impact of Shelby County um, in um, 2013 uh, with uh, the decision in Shelby County uh, uh, taking out uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, the voter ID law in Texas became enforceable and was immediately enforced. A uh, lawsuit was filed on behalf of uh, poor uh, minority Texans. Uh, I also represented Malk in that uh, case. Um, and in the process of uh, going forward with that case, uh, we secured after uh, testimony and discovery um, a uh, decision declaring that the statute, the way it was written at that time, discriminated against uh, Latino, African-American, and elderly voters. Uh, the uh, district court uh, enjoined the enforcement of that law. Uh, the state of Texas appealed that law to uh, that decision to the Fifth Circuit and secured a stay. Uh, one of our clients was Margarito Lara. Uh, Margarito Lara was an elderly, uh, extremely poor uh, Texan from the Valley of Texas. Uh, he testified before the court, and the court cited to his testimony uh, regarding the difficulty that he and his family had uh, financially, extreme poverty, and the burden that it would take for him to secure um, a uh, new birth certificate to be able to secure the ID that was required by the state. Um, that was part of the evidence that was presented. Uh, in interviews with us, Mr. Lada and the other plaintiffs that we presented to the court talked about the importance of voting uh, to those individuals, talked about um, going on election day uh, to the local polling site where everyone knew each other, where he was greeted with people that knew him, and the pride that he took in going uh, to cast his ballot on election day. Um, uh, there was an election that was uh, scheduled right after the decision came out, uh, um, and Mr. Lada was scheduled to vote with the injunction that the court had entered. Uh, however, with the stay, um, he was unable to vote in that election. That was the first election in his long life that he ever uh, missed. Uh, we did secure eventually a... Uh, a positive decision from the Fifth Circuit who found that the voter ID law uh, that violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, unfortunately, before the decision became 
final and before a proper remedy could be imposed, Mr. Lada passed away. So here we have in real life uh, a gentleman who uh, was a veteran who um, uh, enjoyed voting as a uh, function of his citizenship more than anything else. And he missed the last election of his life uh, because the law that had been found to discriminate against minorities under Section 5 and blocked by Section 5 was allowed to go forward because of the Shelby County decision. And even after a district court determined that it violated Section 2, uh, was allowed to go forward again by a stay of that order from the Fifth Circuit. And the uh, assault on minority votings uh, that I've witnessed in my 40 years of litigation continues today with restrictive voting laws that are being uh, proposed in the Texas legislature, uh, limiting the time for voting that has no um, uh, no purpose except to limit the number of people who can vote. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Garza. Uh, Mr. Cusinelli, could you turn on your microphone? Thank you for inviting me here today. I'm Ken Cuccinelli. I previously served as the Attorney General of Virginia and currently serve as the National Chairman of the Election Transparency Initiative, where we work every day to help improve the transparency, security, accessibility, and accountability of elections in every state so every American, regardless of party or race, has confidence in the outcome of every election. To begin with, as states seek to address the shortcomings in their own election systems, it would help to get beyond the hyperbolic and libelous rhetoric that each and every rule or procedure is not only an onerous restriction, but is allegedly knee-jerkingly racist, particularly given that in America today, it is easier to vote than ever before. Imagine an election with no rules, just a table with a stack of empty ballots. Nobody's watching the table, nobody's dispensing the ballots, Anyone who comes along can fill out a ballot, and since no one is watching, as many as they choose, drop those ballots into a drop box. For good measure, we'll mail a blank ballot to every single name listed on our outdated poll book and let anyone return those ballots to unsecured drop boxes. No one would trust the outcome of that supposedly unrestricted voting process. We need rules, time, place, and manner rules. Only citizens can vote. Reasonable rule. Citizens have to register, and registrars have to keep poll books up to date. A reasonable rule. One ballot per registered voter. A reasonable rule. Enforceable transparencies required so everyone can see the election is clean and secure from start to finish every step of the way. A reasonable rule. Ensure each voter is who they say they are. A reasonable rule. The Carter-Baker Commission recommended it, and overwhelming majorities of Americans support it. Nevertheless, voter ID has been particularly politicized by the radical left propaganda machine. Yet despite six months of media-assisted assaults on the basic common-sense need for voter ID, the American people have been unmoved in their overwhelming support for this basic election integrity measure. It might explain why some very high-profile propounders of the false quote, voter ID is racist, unquote, propaganda, like Stacey Abrams, have suddenly flip-flopped to get on the right side of the polling. So on the basic mechanics of how elections should be best run, when you take the discussion out of the overcharged political atmosphere of the day, Americans tend to agree on what it takes to run good elections. We've seen that one doesn't need fraud to shake confidence in an election. 
Does anyone remember Bush v. Gore? In 2000, Florida's election system was held up before the world as a sad joke. Incompetence, election breakdowns, untrustworthy ballots and machines, and haphazard and inconsistent rules. Americans' confidence was shaken. In 2000, the left was screaming its lack of confidence in our elections. And again in 2016. And again in 2018. Highly regarded pollster Scott Rasmussen wrote an article this year in which he recorded that while 31% of Americans lack confidence, that America swore in the correct person as president following the election of 2020, 26% held the same view after the election of 2016. And there is not much overlap between those two groups. Here in the U.S. Senate, you can learn from Florida how the people of Florida respond to the shocking revelation of just how poor their election system was in 2000. They set about fixing it. They fix their laws and procedures, and in many parts of the state, they improve the quality of their personnel. States can and are working to upgrade and improve their election systems, but it's important that Washington not step in to dictate its own one-size-fits-all approach that is really more about control of elections by one party than achieving the confidence of the American people in the outcome of our elections. The first and most important thing the Senate can do is stick with the Voting Rights Act in its current form to fight actual discrimination where it occurs, as noted in Brnovich, and not go beyond it to a partisan federal takeover of our elections. One need only look back at Florida 20 years after Bush v. Gore, when much of the country suffered election breakdowns in their states. Florida, the third largest state and the largest swing state, smoothly tallied its votes with no significant complaints from either side. Citizens can have confidence in their elections, but only if the federal government doesn't force them to eliminate basic rules of fair and accurate elections, as is proposed with S-1 and is rumored with the next round of the John Lewis bill. Thank you. Thank you very much, and I apologize that I omitted among your qualifications that you are a former attorney general, which is particularly egregious for one who was yes. former attorney general myself, so I, <laughs> I And I appreciate that. And we have another attorney general, uh, former attorney general on the dais here. We're in the middle of votes right now, and I'm going to ask uh, Senator Cornyn to preside while I go vote, uh, and Senator Cruz will be voting as well. Uh, and in order, they will be Ms. Nelson, uh, Dr. Nobel, Nobile, and uh, Professor Hassan. And we'll be back. I would hope by the time you're done. And uh, I know the testimony is excellent. I've read it, and um, I look forward to the questions. Thank you. Thank you, Chair Blumenthal and Cornine and committee members. My name is Janae Nelson. I am the Associate Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, founded by Thurgood Marshall and leading the fight to defend the voting rights of black citizens for over 80 years. Our country's ongoing and sordid history of racial discrimination and voting is threatening the future and functioning of our multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy. Since the infamous 2013 Shelby County decision disabled Section 5, voter suppression against black voters and other marginalized groups has metastasized at alarming rates. Now, the court's recent decision in the consolidated Brnovich cases threatens Section 2, a singular force of national reach 
that immunizes the right to vote from laws based on discriminatory intent or that produce discriminatory results on account of race. The Brnovich decision improperly and illogically departs from the plain text of Section 2. It ignores precedent and severely curtails the broad application Congress intended. And as Justice Kagan stated in dissent, the new guideposts proposed by the court's conservative majority are, quote, mostly made up factors at odds with Section 2 itself and mostly inhabit a law-free zone, end quote. In other words, Bernabert's guideposts are unmoored from both text and truth. For example, the majority discounts the express text of Section 2, which requires an equal opportunity to vote, and instead asks whether a state's entire system of voting is sufficiently open to all, contrary to any prior interpretation of Section 2, and to several of the factors that originated in this very body, aptly called the Senate factors, which have guided Section 2 litigation for decades. Another guidepost invites courts to compare a challenged voting restriction to burdens in 1982, nearly 40 years ago, when Congress amended Section 2 to correct the court's previous misreading of the statute in City of Mobile versus Bolden. This arbitrary benchmark flouts the text and purpose of Section 2, which is to prohibit unequal voting opportunities between present-day racial groups, not to impose 1982 as a reference point for evaluating current laws. Another Brnovich guidepost suggests government actors can disproportionately burden the voting rights of historically disenfranchised racial groups so long as governments raise a theoretical even if unsubstantiated interest in combating mythical voter fraud. This guidepost threatens to return our nation to the time when states adopted facially neutral voting laws under the pretense of the purity of the ballot, but with the intent of excluding black voters from the political process. Not only does this guidepost find no support in the VRA's text, it has no basis in the factual record. Arizona could not point to any voter fraud to justify its challenge laws. A study of the 834 million ballots cast in elections between 2000 and 2014 found only 35 credible allegations of in-person voter fraud. By contrast, there are voluminous examples of proliferating racial discrimination in voting during the same period. In short, this unscrupulous decision disregards the purpose of Section 2, and it erects an indefensible barrier for plaintiffs simply because the majority of the court fundamentally disagrees with Congress's use of its enforcement powers to legislate broadly to protect the right to vote from racial discrimination. It's nothing short of an attempt to rewrite and weaken Section 2, resulting in incalculable costs to our democracy. Since the disabling of Section 5, Section 2 has been the primary defense against discriminatory vote denial and abridgment. In 2020 alone, LDF filed five cases under Section 2 and has filed two more this year. In the first five years following Shelby, an unprecedented 61 lawsuits were filed under Section 2. It's been eight years since the Chief Justice expressly invited Congress to update Section 5's preclearance formula to reflect modern conditions. 
Bernovich, Bernovich has now issued its own tacit invitation for Congress to act, and it is within Congress's power, no less today than it was in 1982, to reject the Supreme Court's latest misreading of Section 2 and issue bold legislation to protect the right to vote. In a week where Texas Senate legislators took the rare measure of leaving a special session to protest a discriminatory voter suppression bill and beseech the federal government to intervene, the urgent need for congressional action to update the Voting Rights Act with a clear and unequivocal mandate to protect the right to vote from partisan excess and the corrosive stain of racial discrimination could not be more pronounced. And as we approach the first anniversary of the passing of the late congressman, civil rights stalwart, and voting rights martyr John Lewis, I urge you to do everything in your power to protect the right to vote, which he described as precious, almost sacred, and the most powerful nonviolent tool we have in a democracy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mr. Nobile, did I pronounce that correctly? Correct, Senator. Thank you. Please proceed. Uh, thank you, Senator Cornyn. Uh, thank you, Senator Blumenthal, uh, Ranking Member Blumenthal, or Ranking Member Cruz, and uh, Senator Blumenthal, if they were here. Um, my name is Russ Nobile, and I'd like to take a moment, just a, a little privilege here with the introduction that got left off, is that um, I actually have enforced Section 2 and Section 5 in hundred cases, hundreds of cases all over the country. Uh, uh, before I went to private practice, I was at the a trial attorney at the Department of Justice, which is enforcing the two statutes that are in, actually in question today. Um, I've already submitted my testimony, my written testimony, and I've previously testified before the House, so I'm going to try not to repeat myself, repeat the things I've previously put in the record. Uh, um, but there is one thing I would like to emphasize from my written testimony, and that's the, um, the new standing that's going to be given to the Attorney General under the proposed John Lewis Act. Um, that is going to be a sea change for the Department of Justice. There's virtually no limit on it, and I would really urge and caution uh, the Senate to look at that seriously. I have scoured the Internet, and I read this stuff vigorously, and I've yet to find a single explanation from anyone as to why the Attorney General, after 200 and something years, needs to suddenly start weighing in in 14th Amendment cases. Um, as you begin looking and trying to devise how to respond to the Shelby County Shelby County and uh, Bernovich um, cases, I would uh, you know stress that both cases present distinct questions and have distinct risks and opportunities there. And so some of the discussion sort of blends the two cases together, but they're two distinct cases bringing two distinct opinions. Um, over the last 15 years, you've basically seen two trends in election law. You've seen one trend uh, uh, with basically this growing sort of what I now realize is critical critical race theory interpretation of the Voting Rights Act, and then also you have this this you know explosion of vote denial cases that you didn't have until approximately 2008. Uh, vote denial cases. Uh, um, uh, uh, well, until recently, I never really thought about how to characterize some of these troubling interpretations of the Voting Rights Act. But now, having seen and read, read more materials, I understand where they emanate from. Uh, and in fact, you know, the people I previously worked with, they, you know, they would promote these theories. And of course, I was there happy to explain why they probably weren't supported by the law. Uh, to be sure, the people that did support these that I worked most closest with, um, they were sincere in hoping to enforce the law to improve racial uh, relations, but that isn't the case for everyone there. And I firmly believe that rather you're, you're, you're coming up with these avant-garde interpretations of the Voting Rights Act, either in good faith or bad faith, they both undermine the Voting Rights Act and undermine the ability to enforce civil rights laws in America. 
A good example of this mindset was the department's handling of the 2011 redistricting case in Texas, which I actually was a member of the trial team on. Um, as you may recall, Texas opted to file for preclearance in the district court in Washington, D.C., and there was a trial there uh, over three or four of the districting plans, depending on which complaints you're looking at. At the outset, the department needed to determine which districts qualify for Section 5 protection. As part of that, uh, uh, as part of its public positions the department took, I, practiced, I, I was part of the case. I want to be careful to not to disclose any uh, uh, privileges. But as part of the public positions they took, they lumped together Asians, blacks, and Latinos into, get, into a non-white district that was essentially a tripartite coalition district. What do these groups have in common? They voted Democrat. That was the only thing they had in common. Uh, uh, in the primary, in the general elections, in uh, 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 elections in other cases, I mean, in other uh, offices, they did not vote together, but they got lumped together. Um, and so by doing that, you basically turn a Section 5 district into an ideological district. It's not a racial district. It's not a protected district based on people that are being cracked or split or packed. You turn it into an ideological district. Uh, um, and, of course, uh, uh, um, and, and one of the things that, uh, uh, that gets lost in that discussion, of course, is that minorities are not fungible, homogenized groups that can be lumped together based on the fact that they're white. Coalition theories are only subsumes the individual. Civil rights laws often subsume the individuals, but coalition districts subsumes the, the entire groups of races, and you basically mix everyone together just based on who they ideologically support. And at some point, uh, the, VRA, the VRA ceases to protect minorities and just becomes an ideolog ideological protection business. In the instant, in that case, it was created to protect a democratic tripartite coalition district. The other trend it, it, that is proliferating is is the uh, the vote denial cases, which Bronovich has touched on. Uh, um, I'm running out of time here, so I want to make sure I hit everything. Um, the the provisions in Arizona, if, if, if the Senate doesn't, if the Committee doesn't mind, doesn't object. I'd like to uh, some extra time to maybe finish uh, my comments on vote denial claims, which the Bernovich case addresses. That's a new standard under Section Two that had never there was no previously uh, uh, standard for vote denial cases until Bernovich came about. And of course, Bernovich involved um, regulations that controlled who could handle a ballot and uh, where you voted. And those are regulations that actually have been around for quite some time. Um, Thank you very much. Well, I'll start, and uh, since the chairman and ranking member, oh, I'm sorry, we have another. Excuse me, Professor Hassan, I, I apologize. Since uh, we're doing this in a hybrid fashion, I didn't realize we hadn't gotten to you. Please go ahead. No problem. Thank you very much. Uh, Chair Blumenthal, Ranking Member Cruz, members of the subcommittee. Thank you for this opportunity to appear before you today to speak about the Supreme Court's recent decision in Brnovich versus Democratic National Committee a case which eviscerated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act outside the context of redistricting. The opinion by Justice Samuel Alito for a six-justice conservative majority is unmoored to the text of the statute, ignores the relevant history of the Voting Rights Act, and thwarts Congress's intent. Let me begin with some history. A key component of the act is the Cong that Congress passed in 1965, called Section 5, required states and localities with a history of racial discrimination in voting to ask either the U.S. Department of Justice or a three-judge court in Washington, D.C., for permission to change any voting rule. This preclearance requirement required these jurisdictions to show that minority voters were not made worse off by the change. Congress intended to prevent states from passing new restrictive rules when courts struck down old ones. The idea behind preclearance was to prevent backsliding to worse conditions for voting, a concept that came to be known as non-retrogression. Section 5 helped a great deal, 
until the Supreme Court's 2013 Shelby County decision held it was no longer constitutional because it infringed on an invented state right to equal sovereignty. Although Section 5 was effective in stopping new bad voting laws, it did not deal with discriminatory voting laws already on the books. In the years after passage of the Initial Voting Rights Act, some litigants tried to use Section 2 of the Act to attack restrictive voting rules. At first, the Supreme Court allowed this, but in the 1980 City of Mobile v. Bolton case, the Court held that such challenges required proof of intentional discrimination. Congress disagreed with that interpretation and passed a revised Section 2. This revision rejected the intent standard and embraced a disparate impact standard. It was enough to show that the political processes leading to the nomination and election in a state or political subdivision are not equally open to participation of members of the protected class in that its members have less opportunity than other members of the electorate to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. The 1982 amendment created a broad statute in which Congress told courts to look at the totality of the circumstances, including socioeconomic conditions which could make minority voters face extra barriers to voting, to voting as well as the tenuousness of supposed neutral justifications that states could advance for passing restrictive voting rules. Although the Supreme Court interpreted Section 2 in redistricting cases, until Bernovich it had never interpreted the issue in vote denial cases, in which a state or locality makes it harder for minority voters to register and vote. Lower courts had read Section 2 to set forth a tough standard for overturning a state law, but one that could be met in appropriate cases. And so, for example, the Fifth Circuit uh, one of the country's most conservative courts held in an on back ruling that Texas's very strict voter identification law indeed violated Section 2. But then when Texas amended its law in response to the lawsuit to make it less onerous, the Fifth Circuit held it no longer violated Section 2. Bernovich ignored Section 2's comparative focus on less, lessened burdens for minority voters. Rather than focus on the totality of the circumstances test written into the law and conduct a local functional inquiry, as explained in the key 1982 Senate report accompanying the passage of the Voting Rights Act amendments, Bernovich offered non-binding so-called guideposts for decision. Eschewing textualism, Bernovich creates an ad hoc test meant less as guideposts and more as roadblocks for voting rights plaintiffs, giving states defending restrictive voting laws numerous ways to defeat Section 2 claims. One guidepost rolls the clock back to 1982, holding that if a voting practice was not common in the year when Congress amended Section 2, it is likely not a violation for the state to eliminate the practice, even if it would disparately impact minority voters. Nothing in Section 2's text, history, or precedent supports a 1982 benchmark when early voting was scarce and voter registration difficult. This is, in fact, the opposite of the non-retrogression principle applied in Section 5 cases. Non-retrogression principle kept states from making voting worse. Bernovich encourages rolling back to the standards set in 1982 as a baseline. And the Bernovich guidepost, naming the strength of the state's interest in voting, turns the totality of the circumstances tenuousness standard on its head. Under tenuousness, if a state passed a voting law claiming it was necessary to protect voting fraud, that state would actually have to prove that this was the real justification and not a pretext for discrimination. As Justice Kagan explained in her dissent, throughout American history, election officials have asserted anti-fraud interests using in using voter suppression laws. But the Bernovich guidepost in practice is exactly the opposite. The court repeatedly says restrictive voting laws could not be justified by concern over voter fraud, even if a state could not point to any fraud in its state. The matter is even worse because in Bernovich and elsewhere, the court has made it hard to win voting suits by relying on racially discriminatory intent of a state legislature in passing voting rules. Congress should reverse the statutory decision through carefully crafted legislation just as Congress has done in the past. 
approving voting rights renewals and extensions by broad bipartisan majorities, including by a 98 to 0 vote in the Senate on the 2006 legislation. Legislation will have to consider the scope of Congress's power, especially because the statements in Burovich appears like a threat to find new voting legislation unconstitutional. Thank you for your time. I look forward to the opportunity to answer questions. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Hassan. Um, you know, I want to uh, begin uh, perhaps by asking you about uh, the Chief Justice's role, because I know that you're familiar with the history here. In 1982, John Roberts was a young attorney and special assistant in President Reagan's Department of Justice. It was the same year that Congress was debating amending Section 2 to correct a problematic Supreme Court decision, City of Mobile versus Bolden. In City of Mobile, the Supreme Court held that voters challenging voting restrictions under Section 2 must meet the onerous burden of showing that the law was adopted with a discriminatory purpose. It was insufficient, according to the court's decision, to show that it had discriminatory impact. In 1982, John Roberts wrote, I think it was about 25 memos, the Attorney General, which are in the public archives, advocating against an effects test, as it was known. Ultimately, though, his plan failed in 1982. The court agreed with City of Mobile and uh, passed a revised Section 2 that made clear that plaintiffs could challenge voting restrictions by showing they had discriminatory impact. Uh, so, Professor Hassan, in what sense is the court's decision in Brnovich a vindication of then-attorney, now Chief Justice's Roberts' policy preferences, which Congress rejected outright in revising Section 2 in 1982? Thank you for the question, Senator. I, I do believe that John Roberts from the 1980s and through his history on the court has shown a kind of hostility towards uh, broad protections uh, for uh, racial and ethnic minorities under the Voting Rights Act. Uh, as you said, back in the 1980s, he was the point person for the Reagan administration. It was clear that Congress was going to reauthorize Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, and the big fight was over what the language of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act was going to be. Uh, there was big pressure to overturn the statutory decision in City of Mobile, which had effectively rendered Section 2 meaningless as a, as a standard. And Congress, and especially the Senate, uh, in its Senate report, went out of its way to create a functional, uh, localized, totality of the circumstances test to try and figure out, are minority voters being deprived of the same opportunities as other voters to participate in the political process? John Roberts fought against that. Um, he said in, uh, and he lost that battle, and Congress passed a very broad Section 2 in uh, uh, 2009, uh, in the Northwest Austin case, and then in uh, 2013 in the Shelby County case, he showed his hostility to broad voting rights protections, eventually uh, leading the court in striking down the preclearance provision. And in Burnovich, although he wasn't the author of the decision, he has essentially gotten what he wanted in 1982, just many decades later, which is a return to something like the intent uh, test. Uh, although Section 2 is not completely eviscerated, uh, the burdens, the roadblocks that the court has put in front of minority plaintiffs should not be underestimated. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Garza, I would like to ask you about the extraordinary events taking place in Texas, but I want to preface it by quoting an exchange that took place in the Supreme Court hearing on Burnovich between Justice Barrett and 
Michael Carvin, who represented the Arizona Republican Party. Question by Justice Barrett was, quote, what is the interest of the Arizona RNC in keeping out of uh, precinct ballot rules on the books? And Michael Carvin's answer was, because it puts us, the Republican Party, at a disadvantage relative to Democrats, politics is a zero-sum game. Uh, politics is a zero-sum game in that event, uh, and in that case, the pretty obvious acknowledgement was that the goal was, in effect, suppression of votes. So my question to you is, in Texas, uh, for a second time in the last three months, Democrats in the state legislature walked out to prevent passage of a voter suppression bill put forward by a Republican majority. Several of those representatives, as I mentioned earlier, visited me in my office this morning. The proposed legislation has a number of provisions, including limiting early voting hours, ID requirements, and other limits on vote by mail. Uh, In your experience, how would enacting laws like this one affect the minority communities, communities of color in Texas, people like the clients you've represented throughout your career? So to begin with, um, the stated purpose for enacting these provisions is to avoid voter fraud, but there's been no evidence associated with that. Instead, there has been evidence that where the measures that are being limited and restricted by these proposals have been enacted by local election officials, uh, like, for instance, opening up the time frame for people to be able to vote, that that has increased voter turnout, especially among uh, populations of color. So it's, it's, it's pretty, um, um, there doesn't seem to be a, 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 a nonpartisan grounding for the purpose behind these provisions. They will have an adverse impact on minority voters. Uh, they will make it harder to vote. Uh, and that seems to be their purpose. And that seems to be consistent with the history in Texas, where voting is more considered a privilege than a right. And I've seen over and over again uh, election processes and election rules being interpreted and used in a manner that uh, adversely impacts uh, voters of color. Thank you. I'll turn to the ranking member for his question. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Cuccinelli, it's good to see you again. Uh, 64% of voters, including a majority of black and Hispanic voters, want to strengthen voting safeguards that prevent fraud. And that's what your organization is dedicated to doing. Uh, If the Corrupt Politicians Act were to pass it would strike down every voter ID law in the country. Would that protect the right to vote? No, it undermines it. How does and it, it undermines confidence in the outcome of elections as well, which is also a problem. I mean, th- this is a, a lawyer's committee, so I'll use a court analogy. It is not enough that our justice system produce the highest degree of accurate outcomes possible um, and just outcomes. It must be understood and viewed 
to produce those outcomes so that America can have confidence in its justice system. The same is true of our election system. It not only needs to work correctly, by which we mean producing an accurate vote count of legally eligible voters, but it also needs to be clearly seen to do so by winners and losers so that we can have confidence in the outcome of our elections. I rattled off several 2016, 18, and now the discussion following 20 in some places. This is, it's worked on both sides have had the concern. Um, there have been good reasons for it over the years. And I would just say, you know, the reference to, to, uh, fraud. And since it's Texas, the at- current attorney general of Texas, uh, Senator, respectfully, uh, you know, spoke recently about 500 plus different voter fraud prosecutions um, in Texas. It isn't that it doesn't. Well, well, how is that possible? Democrats tell us that voter fraud never occurs in any circumstance anywhere in the universe. Well, and of course, uh, it has. And, and uh, Congress and the House reran an election in 2019 because of it. It goes both ways. That was Republican operative. Uh, committing fraud in that race in North Carolina. So this is not singular, but protection of voting. Well, and that race was also uh, ballot harvesting, was it not? It was. Yeah, and absentee votes are particularly, and have always been known to be, particularly uh, vulnerable to uh, fraudulent tactics. So 29 states prohibit ballot harvesting. The Corrupt Politicians Act that Senate Democrats are pushing would strike down every one of those laws. Would striking down the restrictions on ballot harvesting, would that protect the right to vote? Absolutely not. It undermines both the right and the confidence in the outcome of elections. So it does double harm. Well, we we have also seen lots of uh, overwrought rhetoric about the Texas election integrity law, about the Georgia election integrity law. Uh, Indeed, we had just a few minutes ago House Democrats from the Texas legislature who fled the state of Texas, who are not doing their jobs, who are hiding out here in Washington and and engaged in a political stunt. what is interesting about the, the attacks on that legislation is, is they're strikingly missing specifics. So, for example, the Texas election integrity law that is being debated right now requires voter ID for mail-in ballots. Does that protect the right to vote? Absolutely, and I would note that it equalizes the protection of in-person voting as well, something that's happening in other parts of the country with the growth of mail-in voting. So the Texas law that's also being debated prohibits officials from mailing unrequested mail-in ballots, from just taking everyone on the rolls and mailing them all ballots, even if they didn't ask for one. That's correct. Uh, is that a provision that protects the right to vote? Absolutely, and I'll give you a, 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 a northeast example uh, in Connecticut, where their Secretary of State mailed out ballots to everyone in the voter rolls, their outdated rolls in the primary and general election, and hundreds of thousands of those 3.6 million, if I remember my numbers correctly, of those ballots were returned with the supposed voter not at that residence. That's an enormous error rate to just lob blank opportunities to participate at clearly ineligible residences and voters. So the Texas law that's being debated right now also mandates cameras and live streaming inside central count and early vote ballot board meetings and mandates signature verification proceedings, uh, cameras in in large counties. Does does that protect the right to vote as well? Uh, Having oversight by citizens uh, definitely protects the right to vote. In my experience as an attorney general, when you uh, provide that kind of transparency in a wide variety of circumstances, not just elections, 
You can talk about it in the sex offender registries. When they know they're being watched, they behave better. It's an excellent tactic. Uh, Mr. Nobile, we have heard some overwrought rhetoric about the Supreme Court's decision in Brnovich, um, which was a 6-3 decision. It wasn't 5-4, it was 6-3. Uh, and we have heard Democrats on this committee suggesting that decision was outrageous, it was far too broad, it was contrary to law. Mr. Nobile, am I correct that the Biden Department of Justice filed a letter with the Supreme Court in Brnovich uh, in which the Biden Department of Justice reviewed its prior brief in that case and, and said, and I quote, the department has now concluded that, although it does not disagree with the conclusion in that brief, that neither Arizona measure violates Section 2's result test. So the Biden DOJ explicitly agreed that Arizona's law prohibiting ballot harvesting did not violate the Voting Rights Act. Is, is that right? That's correct, Senator. So, so explain to me how it is that Democrats are saying this is a horrible, radical, right-wing, crazy conclusion that upholding the Arizona law uh, can't be done consistent with the Voting Rights Act. Is the Biden Department of Justice some crazy right-wing radical group? <laughs> uh, probably not, but time will tell. Uh, <laughs> Um, I, I feel confident we can predict <laughs> that they are not, and yet it seems the rhetoric we're getting from our Democratic colleagues does not match reality. Mr. Chairman, I ask unanimous consent that the letter filed by the Biden Department of Justice in the Brnovich case explicitly agreeing that the Arizona laws should, with, uh, should withstand scrutiny under the Voting Rights Act, I ask that that be entered into the record of this hearing. Without objection. Thank you. Uh, Senator Hirono. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. For uh, Professor Hassan, in the Bronovich opinion, Justice Alito claims to be applying Section 2's totality of circumstances requirement. However, he then introduces what he calls guideposts that should apply to application of the law, things like the size of the burden imposed by a challenged voting rule and the degree to which a voting rule departs from what was standard practice when Section 2 was amended in 1982. What impact are these guide points going to have on the ability to successfully bring claims under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act? Uh, thank you for that question, Senator. Uh, I do believe that these five guideposts are going to make it significantly more difficult for either the Department of Justice or private plaintiffs to win their suits. And, and it's important to understand that these guideposts were, uh, as Justice Kagan said in her dissent, really law-free and not moored at all. Like, if you're trying to figure out what did Congress mean when it passed uh, Section 2's re revised version 1982, we know exactly what Congress means because Congress in the Senate report, the very influential 1982 Senate report, gave a list of, I believe it was, 13 factors to consider. Justice Alito didn't draw from those factors, even though all of the lower courts that had considered this question beforehand had done so. He made up these factors out of whole cloth, mm -hmm. and they are intended less as guideposts and more as kinds of roadblocks or defenses that states can put up if they try and pass restrictive voting laws. And so I think the really key point to understand is that for a court that says that it's committed to textualism, that it's c committed to figuring out what, what the words meant at the time, we know what these words meant. This was a court that was not doing that. It was looking to try to roll the clock back and make it significantly harder for voting rights plaintiffs to win in these lawsuits. 
So uh, these guide po points are, <coughs> excuse me, not found anywhere in the text of Section 2. That's correct. And uh, so that this is why Justice Kagan has called it extra textual. It sounds as though when the court does this, and especially uh, Justice Alito, who tends to send out signals like this, which results in more uh, lawsuits that uh, are brought by people who they expect when, when it gets to the Supreme Court will be um, decided in their favor. So when the court does this, are they not writing law themselves? So I think, you know, it, it's, it's a semantic question as to when courts write law versus interpret law. But what I think we can say is that they, the court did not give a fair interpretation of what Section 2 means. And, and in fact, it's even worse. Two justices, Justice Gorsuch and Thomas, suggested in a concurring opinion that private plaintiffs cannot even bring suit under Section 2, which is completely contrary to how we've understood it for four decades. And on top of that, Justice Alito made it even harder to bring claims claiming intentional racial discrimination under Section 2. So it really has um, made it significantly harder, and it, it's not at all connected to either the text or the history or the precedents and how the lower courts have uniformly understood what Section 2 meant before this case. So for, for you, Professor Hassan and Ms. Nelson and Mr. Garza, it is very clear that uh, after Shelby County, some 13 states immediately passed what we would call voter suppression laws, and now uh, over 400 of these kinds of laws are being considered or enacted in various states. And uh, now, uh, well, what should we expect to see now that the Supreme Court has significantly weakened Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act itself? And uh, uh, why is it so important that we enact the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the For the People Act in the midst of hundreds of voter suppression bills that are being enacted and considered in some 40-plus states? Professor Hassan, Ms. Nelson, uh, Mr. Garza? I'll, I'll just say briefly that um, the most important thing I thought that Congress could do in terms of a Voting Rights Act was to restore preclearance, which is what the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement mm -hmm. Act does. But it's now clear after Brnovich that Congress has much more to do in terms of revitalizing Section 2 and telling the court, as Congress had to tell the Supreme Court in 1982, that it got Section 2 wrong, that it misunderstood what it meant that imposed to owners a burden, that it needs to reverse that and impose a standard that is actually one that can be in, uh, enforced and protect minority plaintiffs across the country. Do the other two panelists want to weigh in? I would like to hear your views, in spite of the fact that my time is running out, but I hope the chair will allow the other two witnesses to comment. Yeah, I'm happy to respond. Uh, Section 2 and Section 5 worked in tandem to protect our democracy from the worst threats that emanate from the history of racialized voter suppression in this country. Section 5 was a prophylactic measure that helped to prevent discrimination before it began. And Section 2 was the, the sweeper. Even the discrimination that got through Section 5 or that emanated from jurisdictions that were not covered by Section 5 were able to be attacked and uh, challenged in court through Section 2. As a result of the Brnovich case, there's now an even more formidable barrier to those challenges than existed before, and we know that Section 2 was never a replacement for Section 5. Litigation under Section 2 is costly, it's protracted, and as uh, uh, Mr. Garcia, with whom I've litigated the Texas voter ID case, noted, 
elections come and go and voters lose the ability to cast their fundamental uh, ballots in elections with no recourse when we rely solely on Section 2. And now we have a Section 2 that is even more difficult to enforce. We need the For the People Act and the Voting Rights Advancement Act to restore the full, robust protections of the Voting Rights Act and to set national standards for basic ways in which Americans can cast their ballots and have faith that they will be counted on an equal basis. Mr. Garza, would you like to add anything? I would echo what uh, Professor Hassan and Ms. Nelson uh, indicated. I would also uh, point out, I'm sorry, and I would also point out that there already has been an avalanche of voting changes uh, that are being proposed uh, in response to these modifications of the uh, Voting Rights Act by judicial uh, decree. Yes. Um, and you know, th this last uh, uh, decision by the Supreme Court is just the culmination of a number of cases that have weakened the impact of um, uh, Section 2 and the ability of plaintiffs to bring Section 2 cases. The chair has left, so I I'd like to call on Senator Cornyn. Would you like to ask your questions? Thank you. Let me uh, issue a news flash. Lawyers disagree about a Supreme Court decision. Happens all the time. Every time the court issues a decision, lawyers have different opinions about the correctness of the analysis and the outcome. But as uh, former Justice Jackson said, the Supreme Court is uh, not right, excuse me, is not final because it's right. It's, it's right because it's final. Under our system, they, the Supreme Court's the last word on interpreting our Constitution and laws. And I want to just... Uh, Ask Mr. Cuccinelli, Mr. Nobile, um, a few questions. You had a lot of discussion about the Shelby County case in 2013, but I was here in 2006 when we reauthorized the Voting Rights Act. I think one of the most important pieces of legislation ever passed by the United States Congress. And the beauty of the Voting Rights Act is it actually worked, as demonstrated in Chief Justice Roberts' opinion. The gap between minority voting participation and white voting majority participation shrunk to almost zero. And in fact, in 2020, in Texas, we had 66% of registered voters cast their ballot. Historic numbers of Hispanic and African American voters participated in the election, which leads me to the conclusion that anybody who wanted to cast a ballot who was legally qualified to do so had ample opportunity to do so, and they did so in a very robust fashion. But Mr. Cuccinelli, in the Shelby County case, Chief Justice Roberts called this pre-clearance requirement of state voting law changes an extraordinary remedy under the Constitution because, as he pointed out, the Constitution itself embraces this notion of equal sovereignty among the states and the federal government. Obviously, the federal government under the Supremacy Clause has the authority to pass laws like Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which remains applicable to the entire country and all the states. But Section 5 was very different. It gave the federal government the authority to pre-clear or not changes in state voting laws without, frankly, offering any real justification other than they disagreed with it. And this, as I said, was termed an extraordinary remedy. But the problem that Congress, that the Supreme Court identified was that Congress did not update 
the 40-year-old formula for which states would be affected by the preclearance requirement. And if it had, it would have reflected this basically no real difference between minority voting in 2000, in the 2015, I guess it was, then um, between no difference between black, Hispanic, and Anglo voting in that year. So my conclusion is the Voting Rights Act worked pretty darn well. But in order to game the system, Congress did not update that formula and used a 40-year-old formula, which did not reflect the current reality. And it also did not apply uniformly across the states. So different states were sub- and different counties even were subject to different uh, requirements. So Congress retains the authority to update Section 4 to reflect the current reality. But the fact of the matter is, if Congress did update the formula to reflect the current reality, there would be no justification as Chief Justice Roberts' opinion indicates, for this extraordinary remedy of preclearance. Do you agree with my interpretation? Would you I, like to correct it or uh, clarify it? No, I do agree, and I, I'd like to em- embellish it a little bit. I mean, the chairman used a descriptive example uh, from the South in, in the voting rights, I'm sorry, civil rights era that culminated in the Voting Rights Act that simply doesn't exist in America any longer. And Chief Justice Roberts said that explicitly in the Shelby County case. The Voting Rights Act works. The preclearance, I'm going to use the past tense, worked. The tests, like literacy tests that existed, the hurdles, poll taxes put in place in some of the states that were covered by preclearance were wiped out, were eliminated. Um, and the uh, in barriers to registration and participation were wiped out, were eliminated. Did it take time for black citizens in those states to register up to the level of um, the rest of the country? Yes, but that happened decades ago, including before 2006, by the way. We've had over 60% voter participation in every presidential election since 2004, and I think you have to go back decades before 2004 to find that same accomplishment. So it worked. That was recognized in Shelby County. And one of the reasons Shelby County and Brnovich are correct is simply because the Supreme Court was dealing with facts and not hysteria, which we're hearing an awful lot of in condemning these cases. Well, if if Shelby County didn't uh, change the racial participation of Hispanics and minorities... Um, and obviously since 2013, uh, there hasn't been a preclearance requirement, even for the states that were previously affected. Uh, it seems to me that this is no longer about race or voter suppression, but more about political power. Senator Cruz did a good job of explaining S1 and its various attempts to hijack the state election laws. I think one thing he left out is the fact that taxpayers would be required to finance elections of candidates that they disagree with on the policies, I think on a six-to-one basis. For every dollar a candidate raises, the federal taxpayer would be required to pay into that election campaign $6 and finance the election of a, of a candidate they ardently and disagree with. So let me ask just one last question about um, these so-called voter suppression laws. In Texas, Mr. Nobile, We have 17 days of early in-person voting. In Connecticut, the chairman's state, they have zero days of early in-person voting. Do you believe Connecticut 
is suppressing minority voting by having zero days of early voting as opposed to the 17 days that are available in Texas, or is there some other explanation? Let me put it broadly. If they were redoing the coverage formula for Section 5, New England would be patient zero. Massachusetts, Connecticut, all of them, the data shows that this racial disparities in turnout and registration is worse there than almost anywhere else in the country. Thank you, Mr. Nobile. Uh, Senator Klobuchar is, as I understand it, uh, next remotely. Uh, very, very good. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you to all of you for being here. Um, my state has the highest voter turnout in the country persistently, and we have elected um, uh, Democratic governors, Republican governors, and Jesse Ventura. Um, and I guess one of the things I've learned from that is what's most important is that uh, people vote, and they feel like they are part of the democracy. And what really concerns me about um, these efforts, which are blatant attempts to limit the freedom to vote, um, is they're literally messing around with the foundation of our country. So I guess I would start with you, um, um, Mr. Garza, because I met today with a number of the Texas legislators, along with Senator Warnock and Senator Merkley, uh, because um, Senator Merkley and I uh, lead the For the People bill. Um, which provisions of the legislation that is now being considered in Texas are you most concerned with? It's, so it's a, it's a bad bill, uh, all the way around. Um, there are, uh, prohibitions limiting, uh, the time frame for when uh, people can vote. I think that's concerning. There are, you know, there was a misstatement made about how, uh, local election, uh, elected officials are prohibited from sending ballots to voters. Actually, they're prohibited from sending applications or mail-in ballots. Um, and there are, uh, those actions are criminalized so that, uh, there are uh, efforts then that, uh, intimidate local election officials from trying to help people vote, uh, assist people in voting. And I think those are, are uh, And isn't it also the fact that if you have more than three people uh, that you're taking to the polls, you have to sign some kind of statement or affidavit? Yes. Mm -hmm. So there are restrictions on assisting voters uh, to the polls and assisting mm -hmm. voters at the polls. And so those things... And also defining your disability. Is that some, there's something in there on that? Yes. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so additional affidavits that need to be filed by uh, voters. I think... All of the things that are included in the bill are things that have been tested and have in increased voter participation. And so there is no uh, evidence of voter fraud regarding these matters. There are There is evidence of increased voter participation, and those are the things that are being limited. All right. Thank you, Ms. Nelson. Just along these lines, uh, Sue, we've identified a lot of these issues. Georgia has passed a law that... Um, is is um, um, kind of unbelievable in some of its provisions. Um, how does the For the People Act, we know the John Lewis Act will help in one important way uh, with identifying uh, those um, um, policies and states that engage in discriminatory conduct and going forward, which is one of the issues that would be forward-looking, uh, they'd have to come before um, the Justice Department to for approval. But the For the People Act is actually firmly grounded in the Constitution. It, uh, there's a provision in the Constitution that has never been doubted that says that Congress can um, uh, make and alter provisions um, uh, governing federal elections. 
And that's one of the things that interests me so much about the bill. Could you talk about some of the important protections in this and how it would just simply create some basic national standards for voting instead of this mess, including um, how we count the ballots after with some states, including some blue states, waiting and not even starting counting them until after the election's over and then everyone's kept in suspense for weeks. Anyway, go ahead. Sure. The sure. Act is a, a very comprehensive and expansive piece of legislation that equalizes voting across all of the states. Senator Cornyn made the point for me in many ways by pointing out that there's early voting in Texas and none in Connecticut. I think we've We've learned uh, over the course of, of several decades that expanding opportunities for eligible Americans to vote only enhances our democracy. It only invites more people to exercise a fundamental constitutional right, and it's something that we should all be encouraging. Before the People Act does that by uh, creating a baseline of two weeks of early voting across the country, it also creates a program of automatic voter registration so that only eligible Americans will be automatically registered. It takes the onus off of everyday Americans to have to register themselves. And unlike uh, what Senator Cruz said earlier, it doesn't allow people who are not eligible to vote to be registered. It limits it only to those eligible Americans, which is a benefit for all Americans. It also includes same-day registration, as well as online registration, and includes a number of other provisions, including welcoming returning citizens back into our electorate after they have served their time. These are all democracy-expanding provisions that we now know 67% of voters support. Unlike uh, much of the rhetoric we've heard today, the principles of the For the People Act are overwhelmingly supported by the American electorate, and that includes 56% of Republican voters, 68% of independent voters, and 77% of Democratic voters. This shows that this law is not a partisan issue. It's not a partisan, uh, it's not partisan propaganda. It is an American issue, and it strengthens our democracy across the board. Well, and I would note your point about people voting after they've completed their sentences, their prison sentences. Uh, Florida, while electing Republicans statewide, actually voted overwhelmingly, I think it was 65%, um, to allow people who had completed their prison sentences uh, to vote. Um, and so I think one of the points we want to make here, and that I made as chair of the Rules Committee, um, is that um, this you have just done. Uh, this, there is significant bipartisan support, as we saw during the pandemic, for people voting safely in the way that they would prefer. And that's the core of this bill. And that's why I know we will eventually be successful. So thank you very much, all of you. Thank you, Senator Klobuchar. Senator Lee. Mr. Cuccinelli, you served as the Attorney General of the State of Virginia, both before the Shelby case and after the Shelby case. What can you tell us about your experience uh, with the Section 5 preclearance process prior to the Shelby decision and then your experience complying with Section 2 in Virginia after uh, uh, after the Shelby decision? Well, of course, there's always the uh, sort of at least theoretically unreconcilable dichotomy where Section 2 uh, legitimately demands that race not be taken into account in um establishing voting laws and procedures. And then Section 5, which demands that preclearance states take race into account 
uh, in, for instance, redistricting and in, uh, in, in particular. So after Shelby County, um, a couple of the small number of DOJ Section 2 cases uh, caught preclearance states, like Texas was one, in a situation where they, uh, under Shelby County, they weren't supposed to have taken race into account yet, but they had to, but it was explicitly done. And uh, so it was a catch-22 at that time. That's gone away um, for the next set of redistricting, of course. But uh, the, the, the burdens of doing this, of complying with preclearance, for those who haven't participated in it, are pretty extraordinary. With over 10,000 election districts in this country, if you move the polling place that you vote at, and I don't mean you, you, Senator, if your state moves your polling place here in Virginia, where I was, uh, from the firehouse to the, to the schoolhouse, you had to get federal permission. If you moved it from the cafeteria to the gym, you had to get federal permission. Why? And we have about Why did that require preclearance? Everything required preclearance. Every, there is literally no detail of your election system too small to be demanded uh, to be pre-cleared by the federal government. And, of course, it's partially a deterrent to making any changes. Um, and so evolution of state systems under that circumstance is just slower than it would otherwise be. And that's just speaking to a good government perspective of running us, running the state well. Okay. Now, as, as I read H.R. 4, I, I read it to require preclearance for states based on mere allegations, um, yeah. not proof of voter discrimination. Yes. If that's the case, then potentially every jurisdiction, every voting jurisdiction in America could be subject to preclearance. Is that right? That seems to be the point, especially with a 25-year look back. So wouldn't that dramatically exacerbate the problems that you face as Attorney General pre-Shelby? Well, they'd exist for every state pretty quickly. For because, every state. Well, all it takes is allegations, as you note, by the Attorney General or um, settlements. The easy way to get a state into preclearance under the circumstances in uh, under H.R. 4 is to sue small election jurisdictions which can't afford to litigate, settle in ways that aren't disadvantageous to them, and that settlement counts as one of the strikes against that state and that locality for bringing it into preclearance with 15 of those over 25 years, um, which is easy enough to file that many suits, then that state is in preclearance. And it had nothing to do, nothing to do with disparities and discrimination based on race or any other reason. <clears throat> Mr. Nobile, is there any data that suggests combating um, state-enforced voter discrimination cannot be accomplished on a case-by-case basis under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act? No. I mean, I think that's pretty much what the Voting Rights Act suggests, right? I mean, you had uh, Section 5, and then you, and then when Section 5 went away, when it was initially enacted, you always had the permanent, permanent provision of Section 2. Uh, was your experience in the voting rights section of the Department of Justice consistent with what Mr. Cuccinelli described uh, pre-Shelby and post-Shelby? Yeah, it gets very granular. I mean, the, you know, the, the Supreme Court's intervened a few times and told the, the section how far that goes. But in one of the cases in Alabama, the, the name is escaping me at this point, they sued over uh, um, uh, or an advocacy group sued over, you know, budgetary changes. So it gets that intimate into what a jurisdiction does. Now, that that was set aside as not a Section 5 change, but that should give you some insight into how granular they'll get. <clears throat> So now that we've, we've accepted the fact that potentially every jurisdiction in America could be subject to preclearance. I would add that 
HR4 has two two forms of preclearance, right? They've got the national version and then the traditional version, and that gets sometimes mixed up. And so it's got national coverage for election integrity measures and a new triggering mechanisms for traditional Section 5. So everyone's getting covered regardless, and then some people may be covered by both. They might be covered in both respects. What, in your opinion, what um, what are the Section 2 violations that are so rampant, that are per, so pervasive as to warrant preclearance? Is there anything analogous to uh, conditions that we saw with the initial enactment of the Voting Rights Act and the uh, the application of Section 5? Anything like that? Not, not currently. I mean, of course, as, Ms., as Mr. Cuccinelli mentioned, I mean, settlements are very thin mechanism for triggering mechanism. And uh, I represented small jurisdictions and represented the state of Mississippi in some some Voting Rights Act cases. I mean, those things can cost a hundred thousand to a million dollars. And there's all sorts of non-substantive basis for settling these settling these cases that don't involve a consent decree, that don't involve a prima facie showing in federal court. Our Department of Justice attorneys. Um uh, or did you see Department of Justice attorneys communicate with outside groups uh, when making decisions of whether to bring any of these cases? Uh, yeah, I mean, they would always go solicit information or uh, insight or views from advocacy groups in Section Five. I mean, you know, some of the some of the other stuff that the the you know the influence is honestly, it's they know how to do it. I mean, they've been doing it for a while, and, and they have personal relationships with all these people, and so they they will pick up the phone and call them, and then. You know, there'll be expedited FOIA processing and things like that. I think a lot of it was spelled out in the OIG report from 2013, of which I was there, and I can corroborate virtually everything in it. Uh, um, in your view, is is the is the voting rights section um, sufficiently nonpartisan that you, you could say that they could make these decisions without any appearance or reality of being outcome driven or politically motivated? I mean, it's it's not nonpartisan. I mean, it's just as a practical matter, it's just not. Uh, uh, can they set that aside? There are some people in that section that are pathologically incapable of setting aside their views. Okay. What, Senator Lee, we're going to have a second round. Right. I Thank just you. want to enable uh, Senator Padilla to go, and then I'll call call you back with the ranking member's permission, Senator Padilla. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, I know our time is limited and the hour is long, but uh wanted to at minimum get in uh, one question directed at uh, Professor Hassan. Uh, Professor Justice Alito, like many of my Republican colleagues have, uh, uh, like many of my Republican colleagues, he has held himself out to be a champion of textualist judicial philosophy. Uh, the basic premise of the philosophy is that judges should start with the words of the statute as they would be understood at the time they were written, and if they are clear, go no further. Any additional analysis would step beyond the role of a judge and is considered, quote, inappropriate judicial activism. But in writing the Brnovich majority opinion, Justice Alito abandoned textualism altogether to reach a conclusion that is entirely divorced from the actual text of the Voting Rights Act. His analysis laid bare that for the conservative majority of the Supreme Court, textualism only applies where it is convenient to reaching the desired case outcome. Professor, can you explain how Justice Alito's opinion in Brnovich effectively ignores the text of Section 202 of the Voting Rights Act? Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, so. The first thing I would say is that 
um, Justice Kagan's opinion in the dissent is, I think, a much more faithful textualist interpretation of what the, what the words of the act actually say in the context uh, in which they were written. Justice Alito has not been as strong of a textualist consistently uh, as some of the other conservative justices. If you think of Justices uh, Gorsuch and Thomas especially, uh, they signed on to this opinion. This was a six to three opinion. The six conservative justices, uh, including the three justices appointed by President Trump, uh, have been strong supporters of textualism. Justice Kavanaugh wrote uh, an article in the Harvard Law Review embracing textualism, and yet this opinion abandons textualism. Uh, they came up with these guideposts that have absolutely no connection to the text of the statute or to uh, even to precedent, which is something that textualists will often look to, uh, or to uh, just the uh, the earlier versions of, of Section 2. And again, this part of the Act was rewritten in 1982 because the Supreme Court got it wrong in 1980 in the city of Mobile versus Bolden case when the court said uh, that Section 2 did not uh, cover discriminatory results. Congress clearly put it back in, and any honest textualist would understand that this was an effects test that would ask, as Justice Kagan explains in her dissent, the, the, the first question is, are minority voters treated worse? And if you can say that they're treated worse in any voting law, that's what this should go for, uh, should be targeted at. And what Justice Alito did was smoke and mirrors to just make it easier for states to defeat Section 2 claims in this area. Okay. Now I have a, one uh, quick question for all five of the witnesses. It's a simple yes-no question. And I'd ask that you each respect my question with a simple yes-no response. The preface of the question is this. When I was uh, in high school government class, I remember our teacher uh, teaching us that our democracy works best when as many eligible people participate. Did my high school teacher get it right? Yes or no? Professor Hassan? Yes. Ms. Nelson? Yes. Mr. Garza? Yes. Mr. Cuccinelli? Yes, and with confidence and transparency. Mr. Noble? Yes. Thank you. And, I mean, it seems like a simple concept, uh, but I ask it for the record because I've heard far too often, not just from several of my Republican colleagues this year, but for many years from Republican uh, leaders, including elections uh, officials across the country, this supposed philosophy of all we want to do is make it easier to vote but harder to cheat. The data suggests we've gotten the harder to cheat down pretty good. Every study, every investigation has not only documented but quantified voter fraud in America is exceedingly, exceedingly rare. What my colleagues seem to have forgotten about is the first part of their mantra, the easier to vote piece. And so I know this is not a hearing on the For the People Act, but as uh, the former Secretary of State of California, having not just championed but successfully implemented a lot of the measures called for in the For the People Act, uh, policies like automatic voter registration, same-day voter registration, no excuse vote by mail, the ability of voters to choose a, a voting location in their county most convenient to them if that is their choice, uh, same-day registration, and more. We know that uh, it's not just good for the voter in terms of improving ballot access. It actually, these policies taken together also help improve uh, election security and protect the integrity 
of our election. So yes, election integrity is a concern and a responsibility. But if we all agreed with my high school government teacher and all of you said yes, government also has a role and a responsibility in facilitating that participation of all eligible voters. And uh, that is what should be driving the actions of uh, Congress and state houses today. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thanks, Senator Padilla. Uh, Senator Lee, I interrupted you, and if the ranking member has no objection, I'll let you continue. <clears throat> I'm, <clears throat> I'm, I'm stunned with the suggestion that was made by one of our colleagues moments ago with the involvement of one of our witnesses. To the effect that Justice Alito used textualism and originalism as a pretext in order to uphold reprehensible voting practices. This simply is not true. Not only is it not true, but the, uh, I believe that statement was made with reckless disregard for its truthfulness. It, 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 if you're going to come in here and assail one of the finest jurists that's ever served on the highest court of this country, you, you better be prepared for it. Look, you might disagree uh, w w with the decision as far as a policy outcome. You might even disagree with the way he read it. I don't. He got it right. But don't come in here and say that because you disagree with it, you think he's using it as, as a, as a veneer, as a pretext to getting away with something reprehensible. That's not fair. That's not accurate. You cheapen this entire process when you do that. No, I, I, I hope that those who made that suggestion will apologize and retract what they said because it is wrong. Not just factually incorrect, but it's, it's morally wrong. Don't do that. That's not what happened. You know that's not what happened. Now look, we've been retold, told repeatedly over and over again that the last election was the biggest election turnout in, in history. Um, uh, we've been the, the most diverse electorate in history. Uh, and yet the feverish cries of discrimination in voting have been relentless and are reaching a feverish pitch, so much so that they're causing people to depart not only from the facts and the law, but from basic standards of human decency. In light of overwhelming proof that minorities are voting and that they're voting in record numbers, I'm completely baffled by the hysteria of the left over the state of voting in this country. I see no evidence demanding a federal takeover of elections, nor do I see any authority to do what they are doing. The Constitution, whether you like it or not, is something that we've all sworn an oath to uphold and protect and defend. We can't just treat it as if it were some inconvenient truth. It is not. It is the law. And it doesn't empower us to take over elections. Likewise, the, the vast majority of Americans support common sense reforms to election laws, requiring voter identification, banning ballot harvesting, securing drop boxes, and yet the left has lost its mind because the Supreme Court has held that common sense reforms in Arizona do not violate the Voting Rights Act. And they don't. The text makes that very clear. Certainly, it cannot be that any voting requirements are unacceptable, and yet that's exactly what we've heard ad nauseum from the left since day one of this Congress. And it's to the point that an activist uh, DOJ has, has taken to harassing the states uh, by bringing frivolous cases against them for trying to do what Americans have asked them to do, to make it easier to vote and harder to cheat. So if we're told that we cannot make even these basic reforms to ensure the integrity of our elections, 
none of our votes mean anything and that we're all disenfranchised. I want every legitimate vote to count. And that cannot happen if we refuse to allow states to make these common sense, non-discriminatory reforms to secure elections. That is, make no mistake, what this is about. And look, you can't step in and try to impose what really would amount to a de facto nationwide preclearance standard and expect that that's going to pass constitutional muster. Much as people were trying to characterize this as if we were living in the uh, immediate post or pre uh, post Jim Crow era, that is not where we are. The very same practices that prompted preclearance and the need for preclearance in the 1960s are not there. Section 2 is still in place for when actual instances of discrimination take place, and those are, are adequate remedies. I have yet to hear a single explanation from any advocate of H.R. 4 as to why those are inadequate. I have yet to see a, a single shred of evidence indicating that there are so many Section 2 cases mounting and going unaddressed and unresolved as to warrant de facto nationwide preclearance. We can't let this happen. It's not constitutional. And the arguments that we've just heard about Justice Alito are patently wrong and unfair. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Uh, we have a big difference of opinion, but I just want to go back to what the Supreme Court said about preclearance. Not that it was unconstitutional in striking it down in Shelby County, but that it wasn't needed anymore. In fact, Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion in Shelby County acknowledged that preclearance had worked. Senator Cornyn, I think, here just a little while ago said preclearance worked. None of them said it was unconstitutional. To be clear, that's not what I'm, I'm not saying all pre I'm saying But going back to the Supreme Court's opinion, uh, Justice Roberts said, quote, conditions had changed, end quote. And in the South, there was no longer any need for it. Uh, frankly, as late Justice Ginsburg said uh, in dissent, quote, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet, end quote. Well, now we are getting wet. In fact, in the wake of Shelby County, numerous states rushed to pass restrictive laws, laws that restricted access to the ballot that had previously been blocked through the preclearance process, including stricter voter ID laws, restrictions on early and absentee voting, and elimination of voter registration opportunities. So I'd like to ask Ms. Nelson, because you've litigated around the country, what has been your experience in the wake of the Shelby County decision? What have you seen? In the wake of the Shelby County decision, we've seen a rise in voter suppression that is absolutely stunning and that is just an assault on the progress that the Voting Rights Act made over decades. Section 5 took away the basic filter in jurisdictions with a known history of racial discrimination to ensure that those jurisdictions would not continue to discriminate on the basis of race. We clearly do not agree with the outcome of the Shelby County decision, but it must be reiterated that the Shelby County decision was very clear on the point that Section 5 is constitutional. It struck down Section 4, which is the trigger for Section 5, and Chief Justice Roberts invited 
Congress to update that formula to ensure that it reflected modern conditions. That is exactly what the Voting Rights Advancement Act does. It updates the Voting Rights Act with modern conditions and questions about jurisdictions and findings, not allegations, actual findings of discrimination and concessions of discrimination to ensure that only those jurisdictions that continue to discriminate on the basis of race are subject to federal preclearance. It is constitutional. It is within Congress's enforcement powers under the 14th and 15th Amendments to require jurisdictions that engage in racial discrimination to submit voting changes for preclearance. It is simply an evaluation, a question of whether those new changes will have a discriminatory impact. It's not punitive. It is not a finding in and of itself. It is a way for the federal government to ensure that our elections are free of racial discrimination. In the absence of Section 5, we've seen countless uh, uh, violations of the Voting Rights Act. The same day that the Shelby decision came down, the state of Alabama, the state of Texas, resurrected voting laws that had been found to be discriminatory under Section 5. They resurrected them and began the process of implementing them. And lo and behold, they had the discriminatory impact that was predicted. We've seen copycat legislation following uh, the, the end of Section 5. And we've been litigating furiously to try to beat those uh, discriminatory laws back. But litigation, as I mentioned before, is not a remedy because elections occur and elected officials are installed. And those uh, those decisions that were made in a, in a context of racial discrimination cannot be undone. And that's why it is imperative that this body move forward at the invitation of Chief Justice Roberts and now at the invitation of the court based on its attempt to weaken Section 2 in Brnovich, that it move forward with clear legislation that is a mandate to protect the right to vote, both prophylactically and by strengthening Section 2. Thank you. I think you've made really very clearly the point that I think is paramount here, which is that our goal is to restore a preclearance process under Section 5 to restore Section 2 to what it was before it was eviscerated by Brnovich. And the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which would accomplish those goals by amending the Voting Rights Act of 1965, is supported by a broad array of business, community leaders, and political officials. And to that end, I want to put into the record a letter that has been signed by 160 such companies, uh, major companies in the country, urging passage of the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Um, that concludes my questions. Do you have any questions, Senator Cruz? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, just a moment ago, the chairman said that the Brnovich decision eviscerated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Mr. Nobile, I, I, I want to confirm what we talked about earlier. Is it correct that the Biden Justice Department explicitly agreed that the Arizona provisions being challenged were consistent with and satisfied the Voting Rights Act? It is correct. And if I can add one point to sure. this, uh, there's been a lot of talk of the five circumstances of the five lodestar that Justice Alito put in his Section 2 opinion uh, in Brnovich. Uh, those things are the extent of any burden, the departure from a historical benchmark, 
the significant significance of any disparity, the opportunities to register, the other opportunities to register and vote, and the and the significance of the state entrance. That is Section 2101. None of that is anything new. Every body that brings a Section 2 case, you look at the size of disparity, you look at the history, you look at the burden, you look at the other opportunities. Every Section 2 case, you do that. And in a dilution case, it doesn't matter because it's a completely different metric. You got jingles, you got Senate factors. But this, this, this argument that, that Alito deviated from the tax is, um, is, is sort of unfounded. Mr. Cuccinelli, uh, can you tell this committee about actual Jim Crow laws? How do they operate? Sure. So, uh, I have to say, when I hear people like the President of the United States throw around the notion of cleaning up our elections by saying it's a new Jim Crow, it's, it's offensive to the real thing. It's, it's uh, like people claiming racism as an excuse when there isn't racism to accomplish other goals also diminishes occurrences of actual racism. Look, I'm a Virginian. I brought parts of the 1902 Virginia Constitution with me. Um, Article 2, and I'd urge the committee to accept this as part of the record of real Jim Crow uh, laws. Article 2 is about the franchise, poll taxes, property requirements, literacy requirements, end runs around literacy requirements so whites could get access to the vote where blacks would not. For instance, it allows uh, those who were active in war for either the United States or Confederate States to be registered to vote regardless of all the other tests or a son of such person. That's called a grandfather clause. Other places they do the grandfather. And let me read to you the spirit of this Constitution in Article 9. This is Section 140. I'm going to read the whole thing. White and colored children shall not be taught in the same school, period. That's what's going on in the 1902 Virginia Constitution. That's Jim Crow laws. I brought with me a six-page test from 19, I want to say, 58 in Georgia. You had to pass this test to register to vote. I was the head of USCIS. We gave citizenship tests for people to become new citizens. They're a cakewalk next to this. I wonder if anybody on this committee could name every judge in the judicial circuit you live in. I can't. And I was the attorney general. That's one of the questions on here. I'd submit this for your record as well. This is a real Jim Crow impediment to people registering to vote. It's both a literacy bar and um, these kinds of tests. The Virginia Constitution includes tests like that. You can find this in California, Connecticut, Delaware. These are real Jim Crow laws. And Mr. Cuccinelli, which party wrote the Jim Crow laws? Almost universally written by the Democrat Party in one-party control, certainly in Virginia and across the South. Which party enforced the Jim Crow laws? The Democrat Party universally. Which party's elected officials benefited from the Jim Crow laws? The one-party control was maintained for decades and decades by the Democrat Party. And Jim Crow laws were designed to keep politicians from which party in office? The Democrat Party. So today, Democrats are at it again. Among other things, they are advocating subjecting every state election law to be able to be vetoed by an unelected bureaucrat at the Department of Justice. If an unelected bureaucrat at the Department of Justice can veto, say, a voter ID law that is adopted by the state legislature that is elected by the voters, is that respecting democracy? Is that protecting the right to vote? No, it's undermining democracy. 
And how is it undermining democracy? Well, when the will of the people, as expressed through their elected representatives, make policy choices in their sovereign state, and a federal bureaucrat rolls in with the power to undo that entire process, you are vetoing by an unelected person the results and the will of the elected representatives in that state. That undermines democracy, and it makes elections less useful to the people. Well, and, and it's impossible to miss why it is that Democrats want to give unelected bureaucrats in the Department of Justice veto power over every state legislature in America. Because those unelected bureaucrats are not just principled, nonpartisan paragons of virtue. Instead, they are hard, radical leftist activists. In 2013, the Department of Justice Inspector General issued a scathing report detailing the politicization of the Civil Rights Division. Uh, the report criticized the voting section of that division for ignoring the resumes of qualified attorneys and hiring a majority of lawyers from only five left-wing advocacy organizations, including the ACLU, La Raza, and the NAACP. Moreover, at a recent hearing in the House, a former lawyer in that division, Maureen Reardon, testified just how political that division was. She said she was shocked at how political the conduct of the lawyers were and some of the dishonesty that Ms. Reardon testified to, as she said, even after a court sanctioned the DOJ voting section with $594,000 for collusive misconduct with ACLU organizations. Ms. Reardon was urged to continue to strategize with the ACLU and other leftist organizations. Now, Mr. Nobile, you worked in, in this section. Is that consistent with your experience? That is. Can you describe the politicization that you saw when you worked in the Department of Justice? Um, well, mind you, I left there in 2012, so, or, yeah, 2012, but I was there during the time that was relevant to the OIG report. When the report came out, it was retrospective, but virtually everything in that report I can corroborate and saw. I mean, I know Maureen, I haven't talked to her until recently when she's gone uh, out into private practice, and uh, I respect Maureen, and I, everything she says, I watched her testimony, and I believe everything Maureen said. Uh, yeah, I mean, the staff has a way of sorting out people's political views. I mean, I don't know the people that have been hired since I left, but I have a hard time imagining that anything has been able to change. It's the culture of a locker room, so to speak, and it's tough to change that. And so it's pretty consistent with the OIG. Today's hard left is opposed to voter ID laws. If Democrats succeeded in giving unelected bureaucrats at DOJ veto power over voter ID laws, would any state in the country be able to pass a voter ID law? No. Um, all right, final question, Mr. Cuccinelli. Uh, Senator Klobuchar and one of the Democratic witnesses said that if, if the Corrupt Politicians Act were passed into law, that no illegal aliens would be registered to vote. Um, is that remotely credible, and if not, why? No, it's not. And it, the, the terms of the bill, the draft bill, clearly not only would register millions of non-citizens, including illegal aliens, because they get into state databases, and that's not nefarious. States interact with the people that live in their states. So, like, illegal aliens have driver's licenses in a lot They of do, in many states. Millions of illegal aliens have they driver's licenses. Absolutely. They'd all be automatically registered, or most of them would be automatically registered. Yes, and the registered. bill doesn't say citizens. It says individuals in those databases. And I would further note, Senator, that there are other provisions. One, it criminalizes, and the chairman expressed his worry about using criminal statutes to intimidate. It intimidates state 
and local officials with new federal criminal penalties if they ask questions vaguely worded if they ask questions about Does it immunize who state officials who register illegal aliens from liability for registering illegal aliens not only that it immunizes the illegal aliens from voting there's no penalties it removes penalties for anyone registered to vote this way from actually voting in elections and thereby denying other Americans the quality of the vote that I've heard on a bipartisan basis here today, everyone values. And does allowing millions of illegal aliens to vote, does that protect the right to vote of American citizens? It utterly undermines it. Why? Well, it may, it cancels out millions of American votes with on an unpredictable basis. You don't know how many this is going to affect in your state. I don't know in my state, but I do know that it will be an enormous number. And I can think, heck, I've won a recount race for my state legislature. I, I remember going all the way back to the first state race I voted in. Doug Wilder won by only 6,000 votes. And we've had Bob McDonald won in a close race. Mark Herring, the current Attorney General of Virginia, won by a few hundred. The difference that would make in turning elections is enormous, and because it is unknowable, it would, in terms of the numbers, it would gut confidence of the American people in the outcomes of our elections. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Hassan, you've heard Mr. Nobel uh, say, in effect, that uh, Justice Alito adhered to the wording of the statute. Is that your view? It is absolutely not my view, and uh, far from apologizing to Justice Alito, as Senator Lee suggested, I, I want to double down and say that this is an opinion that is unmoored to the text. And, and you know, for a full explanation, you can read Justice Kagan's uh, dissent, which goes on for many pages and explains this. But let me just give one example. Uh, one of the factors that the Senate recognized in its um, 1982 report accompanying the revision of um, Section 2 to put in the results test is uh, one factor that would show a violation of Section 2 is if the state offers a tenuous justification for its law. And so what uh, this means is the state, states often, as, as Justice Kagan uh, explains in her dissent, states often will use neutral sounding rationales for passing laws like um, preventing fraud, promoting voter confidence, uh, uh, protecting the purity of, of a ballot box. And what Congress decided when it passed Section 2 in its revised form in 1982 was, you've got to look at and see, is that a real justification? If a state comes forward and says, we're trying to prevent fraud, you put the state to the evidence and you say, where is the evidence of fraud that would justify this law? And some laws are, in fact, justified by preventing fraud. I don't think all, you know, all claims of laws... Uh, uh, as being anti-fraud is wrong. Sometimes that's correct. But what the Senate report and what Section 2, the text of Section 2 required, is ask, is this a real reason? And so the state has to be asked to put forward its evidence. Where's your evidence of fraud? And what Justice Alito says in one of his five so-called guideposts, which he, he tells us are not factors, and he, you know he's not committing anything for the future, but say, here are some things to look at. He says, the strength of the state's interest. And he says explicitly that the state can assert an interest in preventing voter fraud and then not prove that voter fraud is a problem. It can just rely on that as a pretext. And so this is what I mean that this is anti-textualism. It turns Section 2 on its head by letting the state get a free pass and at the same time upping the burdens that apply to minority voters. So if a law is only 
a, quote, usual burden of voting or an inconvenience, and even if it has a disparate impact on minority voters, under Justice Alito's warped interpretation of Section 2, that's not a Section 2 violation. That's exactly the opposite of what those Senate factors say. And I should say, those Senate factors were drawn from Supreme Court decisions predating City of Mobile, including White versus Register. So Justice Alito is not following precedent. He's not following text. He's doing exactly the opposite. This is not, as another one of the witnesses said, Voting Rights Act 101. This is a perversion of the Voting Rights Act. And I can't say it strongly enough. Every time I read the Brnovich decision, I get anger and anger about how Justice Alito has warped the interpretation of the act and turned it from something that protects minority voters into something that protects states from uh, attacks on laws that are discriminatory. Thank you. And, and let me ask you, uh, in real time, right now, not at the time of Jim Crow, but right now, we're seeing a wave, a tsunami of voter suppression laws. And let me, let me just ask you, the, the laws that have been passed by Arizona and Florida and Georgia and Texas, potentially, that reduce the hours of voting, in-person voting, are those voter suppression laws done by Republican legislatures or Democratic-controlled legislatures? Well, I think if you look today, almost all of the cutbacks in um, voting rules uh, are being passed almost along party lines by Republican legislatures and by Republican election officials. So those laws that limit balloting hours and polling places or the circumstances of mail-in voting or absentee voting, or in the case of Harris County in Texas, 24-hour balloting, laws that forbid sending unsolicited applications for absentee ballots, not the ballots themselves. All of those voting suppression laws are passed along party lines with, by and large, Republican-controlled legislatures approving them, correct? Yes, that's correct. And I think we have it from, actually, the the lawyer representing the Arizona Republican Party in the United States Supreme Court when he was asked, uh, and I cited it earlier by Justice Barrett, what is the interest of the Arizona Republican Party in keeping out of precinct ballot rules on the books, end quote. And by the way, out of precinct ballot rules forbid votes from being counted when they are cast out of precinct. What's the interest, in effect, of keeping those votes from being counted? Michael Carvin answered, quote, because it puts us, the Republican Party, at a disadvantage relative to Democrats. Politics is a zero-sum game. End quote. I began with the hope that we were going to have some degree of bipartisanship because voting itself shouldn't be a partisan exercise. We ought to have bipartisan agreement that voting is a good thing. And every one of the witnesses, in fact, agreed with Senator Padilla's high school teacher that maximum participation in voting by eligible citizens is a good thing. And instead of voter suppression, we ought to be engaged in voter encouragement, but that's not the result of these voter suppression laws that are enabled and emboldened by Brnovich and Shelby County, and we need the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act to protect those rights. Uh, I understand the ranking member has something he wants to put in the record. 
Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Lee asked me to introduce this for him. This is a letter from Cleta Mitchell, uh, an, an attorney analyzing the Georgia election reform bill. And without objection, I'd like this letter entered into the to the yeah, record. Um, I, I would also, if I might, ask a couple of questions. Sure. Um, the the chairman just suggested a minute ago that limiting early voting was somehow voter suppression and even racist. Uh, Mr. Cuccinelli, do, do you know how many days early voting the state of Texas has? Yeah, the state of Texas uh, has 17 early days of voting. Do you know how many days of early voting the state of Georgia has? Uh, Georgia has 17 days of early voting. Do you know how many days of early voting the state of Arizona has? 18 days of early voting. Okay. Uh, how about uh, Chairman Blumenthal's home state of Texas, uh, home state of Connecticut? How many days zero. of early voting? Connecticut has zero. Zero. I, th I thought no early voting was racist voter suppression. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't think it is, but certainly the allegations been made. Well, maybe Connecticut's an outlier. How about Delaware, the home state of President Biden? Surely they've got more than these horrible states of Texas and Georgia, right? No early voting in Delaware. Zero? Zero. Like, not one day? Not one day. So, so why are Democrats claiming no early voting is voter suppression when Democratic states like Connecticut and Delaware have zero, not a zilch? Uh, because it is politically convenient to do so. Thank you. I might just point out uh, to the ranking member uh, what his own residence told me earlier today, as I mentioned earlier, I wish he'd been there, the effects of those laws on their practical access to the ballot place, the intimidation that has taken place in Texas as a result of those laws. And in Connecticut, we are moving toward expanding voting access through both statutes and constitutional amendments. It is exactly the opposite trend. Instead of constraining and restricting ballot access, as is being threatened in the state of Texas, the state of Connecticut is actually moving to expand voting rights. Mr. Chairman, what, what do you do with the fact that voter turnout has increased and minority voter turnout has increased in the states that you're demonizing right now? Voting, access, voting turnout increased across the country. And as the ranking member well knows, the rights of individuals are not measured in the overall numbers of turnout. They're measured in individual access to the ballots, a measure that restricts in a discriminatory way that access to the ballot is wrong and should be held illegal. And the purpose of the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act is to open that kind of access. So is the current law vote suppression? With no early voting at all? We're moving in the direction of opening ballot access through statutes that have been passed during this session of the legislature and a constitutional amendment that is in progress to be passed overall. If, if I may, on early voting... I, I have to say, I don't mean to interrupt, we have a vote that I believe um, we can carry on this dialogue if you want to take a recess, uh, Senator Cruz. Uh, there's a vote ongoing and... Um, you can go book maybe like yeah, I can no. my comment will be thirty seconds, Mr. Chairman. Right. So in the NAACP versus McCrory case, uh five years ago, the trial court uh, went painstakingly through the experts from the NAACP, Common Cause, and so forth, the petitioners in that case, and found their academic writings concluded, uh, outside of the parameters of the case, that early voting either made no change in turnout or modestly reduced turnout. It was referred to as convenience voting, including by some of the experts. And it is more convenient, but it does not increase turnout, according to the academic writings of the experts on the left. 
this hearing is adjourned. There will be a week, uh, and the record will be kept open for that week for anyone to ask questions. I thank the witnesses and thank my colleagues for participating. Thanks very much.